Well, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Luke chapter 7. If you don't have your Bibles, there's probably one in the pew in front of you. Just grab it. You can have it. Uh, you need one. If you have one at home, you can keep it, but uh, keep it there in the pew. But turn to Luke 7, and we're going to be looking at the first part of what I thought I was going to get through today. And, you know, I have problems. I have big problems. Every week I go through this same thing where I sit down and I'm not very excited about the passage because I haven't studied it and I look at it and I think this is way too short. There's no way I can get through, you know, anything out of here. It just seems kind of basic and I start studying and pretty soon it just starts getting a hold of you. And then I start typing and typing. Pretty soon my my sermon becomes an hour and then an hour and 15 and an hour and a half and an hour and 45 and two hours and two hours. And, you know, it just gets gigantic. And then I try and cut it down so I can preach it in enough time. But I couldn't cut it down this week. (laughs) So you're just going to get point one. And uh, we'll see what happens after that. Well, if I were to ask you to give me some names of the greatest people alive today... Who would come to your mind? Maybe some movie stars or maybe some business people or maybe the president or rulers of countries or great writers or intellects. Who would that be? You know, your mind probably wouldn't instantly uh, just go to Christians sitting next to you. They're just Christians sitting next to you. I mean, they've never even had their picture, you know, on the front of People magazine. You know, and how many of you would define your average Christian as as great? Uh, certainly the world does not. And what is true greatness about? Is it about, you know, having some temporary fame and lots of money? No, that's not what God says. And this morning we're going to examine the man that Christ said was the greatest man ever born of women, John the Baptist. Now, last week we examined Luke 7, 18 through 23, and in that section, if you remember what happened, John is in prison and he's been sending his disciples to kind of check Jesus out and to find out what's going on, and, and John's kind of disturbed he comes and he asks Jesus, are you the expected one or should we look for someone else? Now, at first, that seems kind of like a strange question, because after all, John was the forerunner. He did baptize Jesus, saw the dove, heard the voice, said, behold, the Lamb of God. I mean, you know, you think, you know, he would have a clue. And yet John be, starts doubting And I think the reason, and we looked at all of them last week, we aren't going to go over them again, but primarily, he was in prison. He wasn't out there preaching. He's probably thinking to himself, if I am the forerunner, why am I out there preaching? Um, The other thing is, is John knows the prophecies that speak of the forerunner to the Messiah and what the Messiah would do after that, and those things aren't happening. They aren't happening. And so John's must be a little bit confused because he's thinking, you know, the, he's not wiping out the Romans. They're persecuting him. They're chasing him around the country. They drove him out of his own hometown. I mean, are you the expected one or not? He's confused. He doesn't understand the first coming and the second coming. He just thinks it's all going to happen at one time. And so this is what has happened. Jesus then, after receiving that question, instead of just saying yes or no, says, watch this. And then he starts healing people, just one after another, just healing people, casting out demons, and doing all sorts of miracles, preaching the gospel to sinners and poor people. And then he says, yeah, go tell John what you've seen and heard. And that's where we're at this morning. Look at Luke 7. Verses 24 through 30. And when the messengers of John had left, he began to speak to the crowds about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? But what did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Those who are 
splendidly clothed, live in luxury, are found in royal palaces. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I say to you, and one who is more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way before you. I say to you, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John. And he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. When all the people... And the tax collectors heard this. They acknowledged God's justice having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected God's purpose for themselves, not having been baptized by John. Well, there's three lessons we can learn from Jesus' discussion of John. This morning, we're going to look at lesson one. John the Baptist is a man that we should all follow. Look at verse 24. When the messengers of John had left, he began to speak to the crowds about John. Now, we just finished explaining. They came, they asked him this question, and Jesus kind of gave this cryptic answer. At least, it probably appeared cryptic to the crowds. They're probably thinking, why didn't he just say yes? You know, why all the miracles? I mean, how is that? And they're probably wondering, you know, what, what is John's relationship to Jesus? And what does Jesus think about John? I mean, was he dissing him by not answering and giving him this cryptic answer or what? Well, they didn't realize that Jesus was doing the deeds of the Messiah, quoted two texts which related to the Messiah. And so when he sent them back, John would have instantly known, yeah, he's the Messiah. Now, that didn't clear up all of his confusion, but it surely cleared up in his mind that Jesus was the expected one. So Jesus then begins to ask them a series of questions in order to lead them to the correct answer. If you look at the middle of verse 24, he said, what did you go out in the wilderness to see? Now, when Jesus says wilderness, you remember where John was. He was down baptizing people in the Jordan Valley. Well, the Jordan Valley is located in the Jordan Rift, this big crack in the earth that the Jordan River flows through and ends up in the Dead Sea. It is one of the, it is the lowest, the Dead Sea is the lowest place on earth, 2,800 feet below sea level. It's one of the hottest places on earth, the most arid. It is just this furnace down there Uh, i went there during a cold part of the year it was only 116 degrees fahrenheit we got out of our air-conditioned buses and it was like walking into you know oven on preheat it was hot and this is where john started to minister and baptize people down in this arid place because there was a lot of water the the word see here, when it says, you know, what did you, when Jesus says, what did you go out to see, is often used of uh, people going out to look at uh, important things, maybe see a show, uh, maybe see a dignitary, you know, something special happened. Let's go see. It's to look at or view attentively. And Jesus says, you know, why, why'd you go see John? Why'd you go look at him, to look at him, view at him at- attentively? Look at the middle of verse 24. And Jesus asks, did you go out to see a reed shaken by the wind? Everybody knew what reeds were. Uh, Reeds grow along the river and grow along lakes. They are these flimsy things that move and bend when even the slightest breeze occurs. They're very flexible. Jesus is saying, did you go out to see some uh, spineless, uh, jellyfish, vacillating preacher? Is that what you went out to see? I mean, who would make a journey to all the way down into that canyon, that hot, dusty canyon, in order to see some guy who is a spineless preacher? The implied answer is, of course not. John was an oak. The guy was a cedar. And he had conviction. He had passion. He fearlessly proclaimed the truth without partiality. He was no reed. Secondly, Jesus asked at the beginning of verse 25, but what did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Hardly. The guy wore camel's hair clothing. This is what they made sackcloth out of. When anybody wanted to really humble themselves, they would put on sackcloth. You've read it before in the Bible, made out of camel hair it was the clothing of the poor it wasn't trendy it wasn't colorful it wasn't eye-catching it was just you know basic brown scratchy brown 
Then Jesus goes on to remind them at the end of verse 25, look there, those who are splendidly clothed, they live in luxury and are found in palaces. The word luxury here might be translated uh, indulgence or opulence. And Jesus was being sarcastic, obviously. John was eating grasshoppers and honey. Hardly royal fare. I don't know about you. Have you ever eaten grasshoppers and honey? He didn't just eat honey. He ate wild honey. It's honey with larvas mixed in. John lived on hoppers and wild honey. Soaking in, isn't it? You're just kind of picturing that. That's, that's, it's not like the clear honey that comes out of the little, you know, plastic bear. It sounds like a brand of cereal, doesn't it? Hoppers and honey with larva. And that's what John ate for a long time. Bugs. He was a bug eater. It's about as far as luxury as you can get. Hot place out in the middle of no man's land, eating bugs and honey with larva, wearing scratchy brown, poor clothing. And this is the very point that Jesus is driving at. You see, a lot of times in the world we go, oh, they're going to be filming a movie and such and such a movie stars are going to be, let's go watch. You know, so everybody runs down there and crowds around the barriers and tries to get a glimpse of famous so-and-so. And And Jesus is saying, so is that why you went and saw him? Mr. Rich, Mr. Famous, Mr. Luxury and Opulence, Mr. Nice, Soft, Colorful Clothing? Hardly. Hardly. Look at verse 26. But what did you go to see? A prophet? Yes. Yes, I say to you, and one who is more than a prophet. The word prophet is made up of two words, pro and thetis. Pro is to is four or fourth, and thetis to speak. A fourth speaker, or in English, really better, one who speaks forth the truth on behalf of God. That's what John was. One who spoke forth the truth on behalf of God. And Jesus was reminding them of all of this because he's trying to drive them to a realization of who John was. He wasn't some soft, flimsy reed down there living in luxury. He was a prophet of God. As a matter of fact, the first one that had showed up in over 400 years since the day of Malachi. And that is why the whole country went down there and listened to him. He was a big deal. And Jesus identifies him in John, identifies John in verse 27. This is the one about whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. This is the quote from Malachi 3.1. And we looked at all these texts last week, so I'm not going to go into them in detail. But the point is, John was not only a prophet, not only the first prophet to come along in 400 years, but the messenger of the Messiah, which made him extra special. He was not just a prophet. He was more than a prophet. He was a fulfillment of prophecy itself. Jesus fails to quote the rest of the verse of Malachi 3.1 where it says, And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. In other words, Jesus says, and guess what? I'm the Messiah. Malachi 4.5, which we also looked at last week, goes on to describe Jesus as, or, or um, John as Elijah the prophet. And we know Jesus said that, if you care to accept it, he himself, John, is Elijah. Matthew eleven fourteen. But even before that, if you remember, years ago, and when we were in Luke one seventeen, when the angel appeared to Zacharias, what what did he tell him? He said, It is he who will go as a forerunner before him, the Messiah, in the spirit and power of Elijah, to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous, as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. That was John the Baptist. That's why he was more than a prophet. He was the forerunner predicted in the word of God. 
Of course, we learned last week that there are actually two Elijahs. Jesus says, if you care to accept it, John was Elijah, but then Elijah is still coming. As the angel said, John the Baptist was one who came in the spirit and power of Elijah, preparing people for Jesus' first coming. And then we notice from Revelation chapter 11, there will be another Elijah who will come to prepare people for Jesus' second coming, will actually do the same miracles that Elijah did when he was on earth. In fact, it is possible that God is going to bring Elijah down to earth again as Elijah never died. Remember, he took the chariot up to heaven. And so he never died. But by this time, Jesus is everyone's mind stirred up. Because you see, people were probably thinking when John's disciples came and then he sent them away with his little cryptic answer that, you know, yeah, John's in prison. He, he's, he's nothing anymore. And Jesus is where it's happening. You know, people are like that, you know. When some athlete, you know, hits some home runs. Oh, he's the greatest athlete. And then he, you know, hurts his elbow. He's nothing. You know. That's, that's what's happening here. And Jesus wants to make sure everybody knows. So he's, he's asking him these questions about the past, about what they experienced, about what they knew about John to bring to their remembrance the greatness of John so that they can understand what a great guy he is. Most made that journey down into the Jordan Rift Because they believed in their heart that John was indeed the first prophet to show up in over 400 years. Mark tells us in Mark 1.5, And all the country of Judea was going out to him and all the people of Jerusalem. And they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. You hear that? All the people of Judea and all of Jerusalem. Of course, that is... Probably a little hyperbole, but the the point is the bulk of the country knew about him and the bulk of the country was going down. They were listening to him and the bulk of the people were being baptized. That's what it means. God used John to awaken the whole country to the fact that the Messiah was coming. He did a great job at fulfilling his ministry. And so most people thought, yeah, he's a prophet. We know this also from Matthew 14, 5, where Matthew describing Herod's reaction to Jesus said this, although Herod wanted to put him, that is John, to death, he feared the crowd because they regarded John as a prophet. In Matthew 21, 24, the Jewish leaders asked Jesus by what authority he was teaching in the temple and doing miracles. And Jesus says, well, I'll tell you what authority, but let me ask you a question. If you answer my question, I'll answer yours. And then he asked him this, the baptism of John was from what source, heaven or men? Verses 25 and 26 go on to say, and they began reasoning themselves and saying, hmm, well, if we say from heaven, then he's going to say to us, well, then why did you not believe him? And if we say from men, we fear the people for they all regard John as a prophet. They believed he was a prophet. That was common opinion. John was a prophet. So Jesus wants his listeners to recall this to mind. And then he's going to drop the bomb on them. Look at verse 28. I say to you, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John. That is a huge statement. They probably just, their jaws probably hit the dust. What happened? Are are you sure of those born of women? I mean, think about that. How many people have been born of women? I mean, that's a pretty clear statement. You know, when you say those born of women, it's a kind of all-encompassing statement. I mean, the Eve is the only one who escapes. And Adam. Because they were spoken out of nothing. Made out of dirt. And when Jesus says... Of those born of women, I say to you, among those born of women, there is no one. Well, when he says there is no one, it's a present active tense. It means there presently exists no one. Well, it's interesting. You compare this text to Matthew's text. Matthew uses the perfect passive indicative. There has never arisen in the past is what Matthew means. 
when he says it, put them together and you have this. There has never, since the time of creation, all the way up until the present, no one is great as John. Now that is a major statement. Why? Well, think about Noah. I mean, Noah was the preacher of righteousness. He was one of the rare people who escaped the judgment of God. What about Abraham, the father of the nation of Israel? What about Joseph, ruler of all Egypt? What about Moses, who gave the people of Israel the law? What about King David, the sweet psalmist of Israel, the man after God's own heart? What about Isaiah or Jeremiah or Solomon or, you know, Daniel? Jesus says, out of all of those guys... John is the greatest man ever born of women. Now, and this is Jesus speaking, and of course he's always right. And so that's a pretty huge accolade, isn't it? That is a massive statement to make a statement like that. This is the greatest man. And John was great, as we mentioned, because he was a prophet, which is a position of honor. Because he was a prophet specifically in a time when there hadn't been prophets. And because he was a prophet that was prophesied about and the forerunner of the Messiah. But that's not the only reason he was great. He was also great because he was a godly man. And I want to point out to you five characteristics of John that you can pattern your life after, that you should pattern your life after. And the first is this. John did not seek prominence, fame, and the spotlight. This is a great characteristic to have when you're just content with wherever God got you. You know, John didn't run up to Jerusalem and say, Hey, first prophet in over 400 years and I got a message for you. He didn't do that. He didn't even go to a city. He went into the wilderness down in this hot canyon to preach to passers-by. And I'm telling you, there's not a whole lot going on down there. You know, I could see him setting up his pulpit, kind of waiting, sweating, hoping somebody comes by someday. And all of a sudden he sees these two little people on the horizon, mom and pop, heading up the Jordan to cross over by Galilee. And he's probably thinking to himself, all right, I can't wait till they get into earshot. And as soon as they're about, you know, a hundred yards away, repent, repent. I mean, think about it. And as they come by, they're probably thinking, whoa, what's this guy doing? Now look at him. He's a mess. He preaches to them, gives them this whole sermon while they're walking by. Maybe they stopped. Maybe they got baptized. I don't know. It'd be interesting to talk to the first people who believed him. We'll meet him in heaven. The travelers would go up and down by the Jordan River because that place was so hot. At least it was a little cooler by the river. At least, you know, they have water there to cool themselves off as they journey up and down the Jordan Rift. And John's behavior was exact opposite of what we see in the world today where people are jockeying, maneuvering, trying to get into that place of, of uh, prominence in the spotlight on the front cover of such and such a magazine. John wasn't doing that. He wasn't scratching and clawing to, you know, have the highest fan rating. He started out in the wilderness A very arid, hot, and out-of-the-way place. That is so interesting. I mean, I wonder how business was at first. And the Christian is to be like this. We are to crave for things like holiness and obedience and faithfulness to God. We are to be craving for the applause and admiration of the world and to be famous and to be in the front cover or whatever. Oh, look at, you know, I'm important now that I have my picture in this magazine. Come on. If you become famous, fine. Just make sure you give the glory to God. You become rich, fine. Just give the glory to God. 
And there's one thing the world hates, and that's when, you know, famous football player so-and-so, some big brute of a guy, you know, makes the touchdown, kneels down there, does a little quick prayer. Why, the whole stadium's sneering at him. <sighs> that wasn't God, that was you. You did it. Proverbs 22.4 says, The reward of humility and the fear of the Lord are riches, honor, and life. 1 Peter 5, 6 says to young men, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. You don't grasp for power. That's not what humility does. You don't seek the spotlight. Seek the first place. Grab for attention. You serve God. You serve God faithfully. And if God wants to exalt you, he exalts you. In due time. For John, due time meant 30 years. 30 years. A lesson learned here, be like John. Wherever God has you, just accept that. You know, if you aren't famous, you're not famous. You're going to be famous before God. That's way better. Just take what God has given you, use it for his glory. And you know, if you get rich and famous, then you get rich and famous, give him the glory. If you don't, fine, you're going to be rich and famous. You realize that? You're going to be rich and famous when Jesus points you out to his father and declares you to be his. Secondly, John fearlessly and courageously proclaimed God's truth. You know, not everyone's called to be the forerunner of the Messiah. Bummer, but it's the way it is. Some positions, there's only a couple, and you don't get them. But everybody's called to fearlessly and courageously and boldly proclaim the truth. And it may be to kindergartners. You know, it may be to friends or neighbors, but every Christian is to encourage, edify, speak forth the truth of God's word, not fearing men. Yet sometimes... We don't speak when we should. And there's a lot of reasons, you know. Usually it's fear or there's some unfamiliarity or insecurity or some sort of intimidation or something that kind of, you know, make, turns you into the spiritual pill bug. You know what pill bugs are. You turn over the rock and there they are and you touch them and they roll up in the little ball. A lot of people become spiritual pill bugs. You know, something happens and... Then when it's quiet and it's safe, you know, they unroll and keep walking. You know, let's say you you get on a plane and you're flying across country and by some mix-up they've overbooked the flight and now you have to sit in first class. And you're so glad because, you know, you've never sat in first class before. And all while you've been waiting, you've been thinking, Lord, give me somebody to share the gospel with. Let me sit next to somebody that I can share the gospel with. It just so happens that on that day, Bill Gates' fleet of 27 jets have all broken down. They're, They're all getting maintenance. And there he is, sitting in the seat next to you. And not only that, but all his top executives are all crowded around. You're the only normal person <laughs> in first class. And you're thinking to yourself, well, 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 Lord, you know, this wasn't the person I was supposed to sit by. I mean, he's back in, you know, row 79. No, he's the right person. He is the right person. You may be feeling secure and you're thinking, well, you know, compared to Bill Gates, you know, I, I don't have anything. I, I mean, he's wealthy and I'm, I'm, I'm not. And, you know, he's, he's famous and I'm not. And he has all this business experience and, and I don't. And, you know, he has all this worldly power. And, you know, I'm just an amoeba. I'm a microbe compared to him. You begin to think to yourself, I'm nothing. I, who am I to speak to Bill Gates, especially in front of all these executives who all admire him? And surely he's not going to want to hear me tell him the gospel. I mean, you know, he's important. Listen, when it comes to giving God glory, when it comes to understanding spiritual things, when it comes to having true heavenly riches, Bill Gates does not even register on the scale. You cannot even spot him with a microscope. He is a spiritual zero in the kingdom of God. He has no ability to give God glory. He cannot please God. He's spiritually dead. You, on the other hand, are a child of the king. You, on the other hand, 
They have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. You, on the other hand, will inherit the earth and Christ and the unfathomable, unspeakable riches which he promises to all who love him. So who's the rich person? Who should be intimidated? It's Bill Gates who go, you're the adopted child of God. I can't speak to you. But of course that doesn't happen. I mean, you're the one with the words of eternal life. You have the gospel of saving grace. You have the only hope for Bill Gates and his executives. The only hope. The gospel of Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter who they are. It doesn't matter how much money they have or how famous they are. They need to hear the gospel. They need to repent and believe or suffer hell for all eternity. That's just how it is. Listen, the judgment of God is no respecter of persons. Hell is no respecter of persons. The truth is no respecter of persons. It just is. And the only way for anybody to escape the judgment of God is to hear the gospel, repent, and believe. That doesn't matter if you're Bill Gates. It doesn't matter if you're, you know, man in the gutter. Everybody needs the same thing in order to escape the same woe. Like the Spurgeon said, we at the breakfast they handed out this little sheet. They kind of called the sword of the spirit. It's got a cool picture of a sword there, man. I love that sword. Um, and uh, Spurgeon said something like this. He said, "You know, when men are running towards hell, let's make sure that on their way they have to jump over us." that we're clinging to their legs and that we're warning them before they get there. They may not want to hear it and oftentimes they don't want to hear it. But see, they're spiritually dead. They're deceived. They're deluded. And that's why we have to go out and, you know, make an attempt. I mean, we can't save them. We can't give them illumination. We can't open their heart. We can't play the Holy Spirit. But we can give them the means by which God brings them to salvation. That's all. John denied himself. The things of the world, the spotlight, whatever. But he also denied himself the pleasure. That's the third thing. Pleasures in order to fill God's calling on his life. And the guy ate honey and, you know, bugs. I mean, that that was it. And this involves personal sacrifice. He was in the hottest place on earth. That involves sacrifice. He was not liked by people. That involves sacrifice. He didn't wear soft clothing. You know, didn't sleep in a beauty rest. The only running water he had were the waters of the muddy waters of the Jordan River. There was no restaurants, no drug stores. No shopping malls and a zillion other things that we have and enjoy. But even though he had far less at his disposal, he gave up most of that to do what God called him to do. And it will be interesting to talk to John when we get to heaven to ask him about his you know, ministry years and his time before that. How did you train? You know, how did you get ready to be you know, the forerunner? I don't know. All I know is when he shows up, he's in a very bad place in the wilderness with scratchy clothes, with basically nothing else but bugs and honey and a message for the people. In order to obey God's calling on your life, you need to make sacrifices. It's just the way it is. It's just the way Jesus says, you want to follow me? Okay, fine. All you got to do is take up your cross and follow me. Wait till we get to Luke Nine and Luke fourteen. Here are some scary passages. All you got to do is hate your father and mother, get rid of all your favorite friends, give up all your possessions, and die. Eh, then you can be my disciple. And you know you have to you have to give up things. You know sometimes you'll you'll have to maybe say no to a better paying position. Why? Because you would have to compromise to do that. Or maybe you say no to living in a better place because there's, there isn't a good church there and you aren't going to move your family to that place because there isn't a good place to worship and serve. 
Sometimes you have to say no to dying with $20 million in the bank. Sometimes you have to say no to that job which would take you away from your home and your ministry. Sometimes you have to say no to that friend or no to this temptation or no to whatever. All of these things are sacrifices. And listen, God may not call all of us to give up everything, but he calls all of us to be willing to give up everything. Sometimes, though, when we're unwilling to give up what we have and we fall so far in love with the world that he, then he takes it away by force. Can you think of an example recently? Hurricanes? Those people have had their whole life wiped out. Whole cities and regions have been just annihilated by the hurricanes. Many have lost everything. Their friends, family, job. Some have been able to get back into the contaminated area after they've picked up all the dead bodies and to see the mud slick that used to be their business or their house. I thought that was interesting how it picked up that whole, what is it, a casino and put it on I-90. It was very interesting. And let me ask you, do you suppose the people of the Gulf area are worse sinners than those in L.A.? Do you think that God brought that judgment upon them because they're so bad and we're so good? Do you think the towns and the cities and the people obliterated by the tsunami or the huge uh, tornadoes that ripped through the central states last year, that uh, those people were worth, worse sinners than the people of Burbank and the L.A. area? I think again. Think again. We may have little chance of suffering a hurricane or tornado or tsunami, but most of us can probably guess God's judgment of choice for us. And listen, when people don't listen to God and his word, then God goes forth with circumstances to make them listen. Jesus preaching on what would come before the tribulation in the last days, the days in which we live, said this in Luke 21, 10 and 11. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, and there will be great earthquakes and various places, plagues and famines, and there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. Terrors and great signs from heaven. Imagine for a moment a huge earthquake, eight or nine on the Richter scale that shakes everywhere from San Diego all the way up to San Francisco. Every overpass is collapsed. The freeways and roads are all broken up and fractured. All the water pipes are fractured. All the gas pipes are fractured. All the electrical lines are down. Then what? Reality. Reality. You can't trust in your cell phone. Because the cell phone towers are knocked down. And there's no power to run them. And there's no place to charge your cell phone. You can't go lay on somebody your platinum card because no one's selling. Everyone's hoarding. Why? Because you can't distribute food. You can't grow food. You can't get it around. People can't communicate. The police, they can't even help people because they're trying to help their own family and they, they can't communicate either. And they can't even get around. They can't capture the bad guys and put them into prison because the prisons are knocked down and it has become apparent that everybody's a bad guy almost. This leads to desperation. And people begin to loot and steal. And as things get more and more rare, people start killing people. And then famines happen. And all those dead bodies collapse in the building. There start to be plagues. There's chaos. And there's anarchy. And there's mayhem. You think that's like science fiction? It's going to happen. The Bible says it's going to happen. Don't think it couldn't happen right now. We deserve it. You know, we haven't had a good earthquake in what, 14 years, 94 or whatever. 11 years. Yeah, earthquake. Come on. 
You know, the faster the big earthquake comes, then the sooner Jesus gets here. Oh, you want the earthquake? <laughs> Can you come without it? No, no. And when it comes, and it will, what are you going to do? You're going to run outside with all the other hysterical people. A tree fell on my Lexus. <laughs> I mean, if it didn't, you wouldn't be able to drive it. The roads are all broken up and there's no place to get gas anymore. What are you going to do? Sit in your front yard and cry and, and weep and I've lost everything. Well, you're going to lose everything anyways. This world is not your home. The whole world's going to be burnt up. Come on, let's get back to reality. You're going to lose it. It's gone. What are you going to do? I'll tell you what you're going to do. You're going to have hope in Jesus. You're going to trust in Jesus. And you're going to go around all your hysterical neighbors who are crying because of this huge earthquake. And you're going to start telling people about reality. Judgment is coming. You need Jesus. He's your only hope. And I'm telling you, it's much better to do that today while you have all that you have than to wait until the great earthquake. We need to be like John who voluntarily sacrificed to fulfill his ministry and we need to start doing it now and not wait. Not wait. Fourth, John was humble. We've already looked at an aspect of this. He didn't look for, for fame and fortune and the spotlight, but he was also, we see his humility and that when he saw Jesus, he said, I need to be baptized by you. And then he said, I'm, I'm unworthy to even tie the thong of Jesus' sandal. And then later on, he said, when his disciples said, you know, a lot of people are going in there. They're, you know, following Jesus and his disciples. And John said, hey, Jesus must increase and I must decrease. Think about that. The whole country was going out to see John. He was the talk of the whole country. And then when Jesus shows up, it's like, yeah, go follow Jesus. Go follow Jesus. He's the guy, Lamb of God. That's the guy. I need to disappear. You know, we need to be humble like John was humble. You know, we need to let be willing to have other people talk to us about our sins without getting angry and defensive. We need to be willing to submit to those who are over us, even when we feel they're wrong, and to do it without bitterness, without anger, without resentment. We need to be willing to be overlooked and pass over and other people get the credit and other people to serve instead of us, even when we know we could do it better. It's okay. And when somebody comes along and they can do it better, we need to make sure we don't hold on to a piece of turf. This is my ministry. I've been doing this for 12 years. What's it all about? You and your position or God in his glory? This isn't the business world where you have squatters rights, and seniority. This is about God getting maximum glory. Somebody comes along, they're better than you, then praise God. Get them in there. Do it better. John turned his back and all the attention, all the fame and said, behold, the lamb of God who takes away to the sin of the world. That guy needs to increase. This guy needs to decrease. He was humble. If you faithfully live for Christ, you acknowledge and thank and praise God with whatever he gives you. You don't grasp for it. You're willing to step down. You're willing to move aside. You're willing to be second chair, third chair, fourth chair, fifth chair. So someone else can do it. Better, sometimes worse. Jesus said in Matthew nineteen twenty nine, everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or farms for my sake will receive many times as much and will inherit eternal life. One ancient manuscript, a really old manuscript says, will receive hundreds of times as much. They're just going to get, it's not even a, what are you crying about? God's going to know, God notices everything you do and every sacrifice you make for his glory. And he's not going to forget a single thing. He doesn't, he's like an elephant, man. He's not forgetting. And you will be rewarded and you won't deserve it either, but you're going to get it. Lots of rewards. Fifth, John was willing to die for what he believed and did in the end die for what he believed. 
This is the fifth thing we learn. And everything worth living for is worth dying for. This is a good axiom. The problem is there are many things the world is trying to get, convince us is worth living for, but it, they aren't. But I'm telling you, Christ is worth living for. And he is worth dying for. Jesus warns that the world's going to hate you when you follow him. You're going to receive persecution when you follow him. You're going to be ostracized. You're going to be fractured in your relationships with mothers and fathers and aunts and uncles and nephews and close friends because you're following him. John was not of this world. He had a different standard. He had a different calling. He had a different worldview. He went against the legalistic, liberal, religious establishment. He went against the, the masses. He told everybody the same thing. You've all got to repent. Every one of you. Jesus said in Luke 14, 27, whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. And everybody knew at that time to pick up a cross meant to go get hammered on that cross, hung up there, and to die slowly. Jesus' sole point, you need to be willing to die to self. Listen to what Jesus said to the disciples. The disciples brought some Greeks who wanted to meet Jesus, and this is how Jesus spoke to these Greeks. It didn't seem very encouraging. You think, well, you know, maybe he could have said something a little heart less hard. This is what he said, John 12, 20, 24 through 26. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. You take, a, you take some wheat and you have a wheat plant and it never gets old, that never dries up and never dies, and the kernels never fall off, then you never have more wheat. It never multiplies. He says, but if it dies... And implied is buried in the earth. It bears much fruit. He who loves his life loses it. He who hates his life in this world will keep it into life eternal. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the father will honor him. You lose your life. You follow Jesus. You endure what he endured. And you get honored. If you're unwilling to do that, if you're unwilling to be honored by the Father, that's what he says. You will lose your life in the life to come if you don't lose it in this life to Christ. That is one scary passage. That's what Jesus said. And you know what? He said it, I think, four different instances. You have to be willing to die to self. And you may be out there thinking, well, Jack, I I don't know if I can muster up the courage to, to, to die. I mean, I'd like to think I could have the courage to die, Well, listen, God doesn't give you the grace today to die for what might happen in the future. But I'll tell you this, if you know Christ and you're praying and you're trusting in God, his grace will be sufficient. And I would encourage any of you who have never read Fox's Book of Martyrs, go down and get an easy to read version. The old one's kind of in Elizabethan English if you don't like that stuff. Just go to get an easy to read version and just read that thing. Read stories of men and women and children who died for Christ because they would not deny him. Children rebuking their mother. Mother, we cannot deny the Lord. Be strong. Both of them going into the fire. And all they had to do is just a little pinch of incense to some pagan god. That's all. I mean, it's just a pinch of incense. Pagan gods don't even exist. They aren't even real. Steeled with the courage of God's grace. So that's what John was like and that's what we need to be like. So what have we learned from John's example this morning and what are you going to do about it? Are you going to seek fame, riches, honor, power, influence, and position? Or are you just going to seek to be faithful to do whatever God has gifted you and called you to do? Are you going to fearlessly and boldly tell others about the gospel and the truth of God's word without partiality? Or are you going to be spiritual pill bugs? I mean, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? Are you going to deny yourself whatever worldly comforts you need to deny yourself in order to obey God's calling on your life? Listen, he's not going to call all of us to Papua New Guinea, but he calls all of us to sacrifice. Are you going to do that or not? Are you doing that or not? And if you're not doing it, when are you going to start? I mean, is there, an, is there ambiguity there? Do you think that it only applies to the people sitting next to you? The scriptures are clear. You need to make it your regular habit of life to constantly serve. Give of your time. Give of your talents. Give of your resources. Use your spiritual gift. Give of your money. Give, give, give to God. Why? Because he's worthy. He's worthy. 
Fourth, are you going to choose to humble yourself? Or are you going to continue on in pride? Are you going to humble yourself in the mighty hand of God to say, listen, I'll be fourth chair. I'll do it with excellence. And when somebody wants to promote me, they can. Otherwise, I'm just going to stay here. Remember Isaiah 66 two. It is to this one that I will look to him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. Are you going to leave here willing by God's grace to live for the truth and if necessary, die for it? Or are you going to cave in? Yeah, you know, I've got my price. I mean, what is your price? A finger? An arm? An eye? Two eyes? Two eyes in your mother? Two eyes in your husband? Two eyes in your wife? What, what's the price? I mean, how much is it going to take for you to deny Christ? What, what's your price? Well, there should be no price. No price. In Matthew 10, 38 and 39, one of the many texts there, Jesus says, and he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. And he who has found his life will lose it. He who has lost his life for my sake will find it. It appears over and over in the scriptures. Need to consider the cost of being a disciple. Need to follow John. He's a godly man. He's the greatest man ever born of women. Next to Jesus, he's the preeminent example. We need to follow him. Follow his example. He did it right. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for John and his example. And Father, oh, it is going to be so thrilling if by your will we come back next time to discover some really encouraging things. And Father, I just thank you for everyone here. I pray that we would all search our hearts. A message like this is so convicting as we put our life up to the greatest man ever born of women. We feel so small and inadequate and ungodly. And Father, We know that your grace is sufficient. We know you love us. And even when we are faithless, you remain faithful for you cannot deny yourself. We beg you to change us. We beg you to transform us, to make us more into the image of Christ, to give us the courage we need, to give us the truth we need, to help us have the walks that we need to give you glory. And Father, if there's anybody here who has never repented of their sins, who has never given their life to Christ, may they do that today because judgment is coming. And it starts with the household of God. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.